Good morning. Good morning, my brother and sister listeners on WBAI 99.5 FM, WBAI.org. It is a glorious morning to be alive, to be healthy. For those of you who are struggling with health issues right now, I want you to know and I want you to think deeply and I want you to understand that we are trying to lift you up through spirit. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall during these turbulent times. Yes, we're all in this together, like it or not, wear a mask. Like it or not, we are trying to survive. And many things come to mind, but I want us to know that a hundred years ago, the Spanish flu was ending that it was a global pandemic. And we use the word pandemic because it involves more than one continent. When there is an epidemic that involves more than one continent, it's a pandemic. And I also want you to think about, and we're gonna focus a little bit, not in this particular program, but coming up in the future, what is happening in Africa? That will be one of our upcoming programs because we're focused so much on Europe and America During the Ebola epidemic, we saw that there were many people affected, many lives lost. And sometimes we can sit back and be a little cocky, right? Is that the American spirit to look down on others and as less fortunate and be cocky about our esteemed positions? But now we're on the other side of that. And there are very few cases of the coronavirus on the continent of Africa. We need to be looking at that. We need to be thinking about what are they doing? What did they learn from the Ebola crisis that prevented the outbreak going to the extent it has in the United States? That will be a program we have coming up in the weeks to come. However, this particular show is going to focus on health disparities and the virus. And as I said, we can look at what's going on with Africa and those health disparities continentally. But today we're going to look at health disparities nationally, health disparities and the virus. And our guest will be Dr. Candace Johnson, who is on faculty at Virginia Commonwealth University. And then we're going to look at voting rights during the pandemic. Dr. Johnson. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining me. And um, I just want people to know that Dr. Johnson is this brilliant nurse and professor and at Virginia Commonwealth University School of Nursing. And what I think is so fascinating is that I was introduced to Dr. Johnson through a Zoom program that took place on Sunday that was so informative about health disparities that was sponsored by the Richmond branch of ASALA, the Association for the Study of African American Life and History. And for full disclosure, I am an executive council member of ASALA. And I look forward to um, hearing more because I was so well-informed on Sunday. I had to have you on my program. Welcome and thank you so much, Dr. Johnson. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity to share this wonderful uh, health information that we have for African-Americans. So let's let's focus, if we can, and, and help me and my listeners understand when we saw the, uh, in March that there were health disparities 
we had no idea that it would hit so hard in communities of color, especially um, African-American and Latino communities. And uh, let's just uh, unpack that. What did you think when you saw the numbers initially? 70 to 80 percent of the deaths by COVID-19 were African-American Latino, depending on communities. Well, I have to be honest with you, Gloria. I've been tracking uh, COVID-19. I had been tracking it for about a month before it really hit um, hit the uh, airways as this big uh, pandemic in March. So I had been tracking it through February. And uh, also, as a public health person, my master's in public health um, kind of trained me to keep an eye out and keep surveillance um, for different um, things that could outbreak, like flu. And um, we have a whole host of different infectious diseases that we follow. Um, but the fact that this was a novel um, uh, virus, meaning that humankind has not had to contend with this particular version of a coronavirus yet, and that, or if we did, it was so long ago that we don't have any resistance for it anymore. So when I saw that, I got concerned about um, all of the vulnerable and high-risk communities because that's where my area of interest and area of research is. So I know what health disparities are. I know how they relate to health inequality. And so I wasn't surprised when I saw that um, even though there was gossip about the African-American community that this doesn't influence or impact us the way it was influencing and impacting others. Um, I was not surprised to hear um, the leadership in health talking about this health disparity, um, mostly because I understand how health disparities work. And as the old statement goes, um, if America has a cold, then black folks have the flu. So um, even though we thought that we had lower numbers initially and we saw that in places like Africa and uh, where, you know, a lot of African-Americans kind of have their their ancestry from were having lower than expected numbers. I think we thought we had a free pass, excuse me, and that we were OK. And uh, so when those numbers came out, it was shocking to most. But honestly, to me, I, 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 I understood it and I get that the way we live um, the way our culture influences our behaviors, um, the way we um, ha already have so many comorbidities are really what set us up for this. And, and the fact that I've seen still too many people of color walking around without a mask. Right. And it's some rebellious spirit. I'm that's not going to do it. And they're, they're not putting a mask on their children. Um, and uh, I, I, I want to go back now to some of these comorbidities. And these comorbidities are based on genetics, based on um, um, personal choices. What, what, what are we talking about here? Well, we know that the comorbidities that are really impacting uh, COVID health or um, uh, outcomes with COVID-19, we do know that those tend to be in the area of hypertension, um, heart arrhythmias, and um, or you know or or improper dysfunctional heart rhythms, as and uh, type two diabetes, and obesity. So those are the four main comorbidities that are bringing out poor outcomes. Of course, if the, you have worse comorbidities like congestive heart failure, COPD, or um, uh, chronic renal disease. If you have any of those, you're at even more of a risk. So uh, those of us who may not have been identified as people who have these diseases, 
are still at risk if we have family members who've died from these diseases or who have had these diseases. So one in five African-American women is walking around with heart disease and has no idea. Um, so and 50,000 African-American women died of heart disease, um, you know, uh, every year. So it's it, that's how many COVID deaths we had. Uh, last month in one month. So if we can get an idea of what that big number is, we would know that as a group, we are highly at risk, African-Americans and Latinos, um, which I know, you know, have a high population in the New York area. So they are also, um, you know, have this, I wouldn't say it's genetic predisposition. I would say, um, for your listeners, epigenetic is more appropriate because it's what's happened over the past, I would say, few generations um, that have influenced our health the most. So it isn't so much that um, we inherit disease, but we inherit behaviors that influence disease. Um, so like poor eating habits, um, sedentary lifestyle, all of these lead to these poor health outcomes. And a lot of them are you know, as I mentioned in that uh, talk that you saw last Sunday, you know, a lot of them are structural or take place above the level of an individual's ability to make a good choice. So not all of it is the fault of the people who are suffering from that disease, but African-Americans and Latinos do carry a large burden of disease. So it's not COVID-19 is not genetic. However, it's an opportunistic virus that will take advantage of any vulnerability that you have. And in the case of African-Americans, our vulnerabilities are um, these comorbidities that we already have. I, I'm glad you put it in that, that, that vein in the end, because the, the disease is taking advantage of what the vulnerabilities, health vulnerabilities are within individuals and mm -hmm. certain individuals based on history, based on their ability to access health care, based mm -hmm. on um, certain health concerns that, that are pre-existing, are more vulnerable to the virus. But I've also had um, indications and cases, uh, some of them anecdotal, others I know about, where very healthy people have been struck mm -hmm. down by this mm -hmm. disease. Mm -hmm. It is an uh, opportunistic infection that it, that really comes for the lungs or any of the mu mucus um, airway. So it really is about the mucus mucus lining of the inside of the mouth, the inside of the nose. If you can get back in the throat, it's really going to do a lot of damage. So here's where what you were mentioning earlier about the mask comes in. If you can reduce what uh, we scientists call viral load or the amount of virus that gets on your hands and in your mouth and in your nose, you can reduce the severity of the illness. So if you are a young person, you've made yourself more or a person who has no comorbidities, you've made yourself more vulnerable by going to a a place with a high amount of virus so if you go into an environment without a mask and say you walk say you're walking through a, a, a grocery store someone just sneezed you didn't hear that person sneeze you didn't see that person sneeze but you moments later walk into the area where they sneezed without a mask all that virus has just entered your nasal passage. And at that point, you may have 
uh, taken on such a viral load that you get really, really sick, perhaps more sick than a person who, say, uh, touched uh, an article, uh, a cardboard box that was touched by someone with COVID-19. The problem with COVID-19 is that we have so many asymptomatic carriers. 80% of people who will get this disease will not uh, will, will get through it. Um, they'll get through it the way they get through a cold or anywhere from a range of not having any idea they had it all the way through to a range of you know, having to be able to get through it without going to the hospital. But 20% of people are going to end up in the hospital. And of those 20%, large percentages, 50 to more than that, are not making it out of the ICU uh, alive. So it really is for the 20% to really, and you don't know if you're in that 20%. And some people feel like, oh, if I catch it, I'm young and healthy, I can be okay. But it depends on how much virus you get. So it's so much we don't know. Um, and, and, and scientists, including, you know, medical doctors, um, nurses on the front lines, researchers who are um, just kind of looking at the, the pharmacokinetics and the psycho, um, all the, it, there's so many different aspects to look at, you know, not just the medical aspects. Um, there's also ethical um, things and things around resources and who gets a ventilator and, you know, how these decisions are made. There's so much we do not know. So with that being said, if you wanted to individually protect yourself, the best way to do that in an era when people just don't know enough to, to save your life potentially, if you go into a scenario where there's a surge in a hospital or there's, um, or you have a high viral load, like I mentioned, and you're very sick. Um, there are just so many scenarios that you cannot um, navigate or uh, predict. Um, so it's better to just protect, 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 protect yourself and keep a barrier between you and the virus. And, and that's where the mask comes in. That's where the gloves come in. That's where the six feet of distance come in. And that's where not going anywhere that you don't need to go um, until we get closer to understanding best how we as a society are going to work together to keep each other from getting sick. Um, we're going to have to take those precautions. And what about testing? We've heard so much about it. And this uh, elusive, elusive test that's out there is what is it to tell us? And, and, and the other is, are there more than one strain of this? Because I've, I've seen so many different types of symptoms play out among my friends and others that I've known who have had the virus that I'm wondering if it's like the flu, a mutating type of, of virus that can have different symptoms to, for different people. But testing first and foremost, let's focus on that. Okay, well, uh, testing is part is one of our best approaches to uh, controlling the 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 chain of transmission or controlling the way this disease moves about the communities. So uh, because testing allows us to find out who those individuals are who actually have the disease or have the yeah the disease in their bodies. Right. So after we do that testing and that's a. That's a pretty sophisticated test, and that's why there's so few of them. States are trying to ramp up their ability to get these tests out to people, but right now you still have to meet a certain criteria to get a test. And um, although we don't, we have the 
knowledge of how to make these tests. We don't have all the materials that we need. So tests are, are few and far between at this point. Um, they should ramp up a little bit more and you have these commercial tests that are coming out that will allow people to at least have an idea of whether or not um, they uh, may have been exposed to the virus. That being said, once you get a test and you report a positive to the health departments, they can start what's called a contact tracing. And contact tracing is what what the most successful countries have been able to do to reduce or impact that curve that everybody's talking about. Because um, we want to flatten the curve, but we also want that curve to go back down in a steep decline. And um, we're not doing so great at that as a country right now. We are experiencing some flattening, but uh, as the states reopening reopen, there will be um, there's a potential for there to be less flattening and possibly even a resurgence of cases. If that is the case, then we need to to be testing people who think they have it uh, or have been exposed to the virus and then having the investigators come out and find out all of the people and we call that contact tracing where they found out all of the people you may be exposed to so we can then go and test those people and then once you know who all the positives are you can separate the positives from the negatives and keep people from contaminating each other if we don't have the testing we could just be out there just mixing and mixing and mixing with one another. And there's a thing called um, the r naught, And I know it's a super science-y term, but it really just means uh, the lower that number is, the less people you can infect or the less people in your community are getting infected. Right now in the New York area, it's about 1.1, which is pretty good. And we would love to keep that, I'm sure. However, at, at the worst of what was happening in New York, it was up to six. All right. And six means for every one person that was getting ill or getting a positive diagnosis, six other people were getting sick because of them. And that's why you all experienced such a huge outbreak. And that's because, you know, you really couldn't control that. But now that it's at a better control down to about 1.1, you want to keep that number low like that. And I know that's what your um, governor is using to maintain or decide how they're going to be making decisions moving forward. So that contact tracing and testing and isolating the sick people from the people or the people who may not be sick but still are shedding virus they also need to be separated. And if we can separate those people, that's going to be complicated as well. But if you out there think you have been exposed to COVID-19 or you're going through the symptoms or you have a fever, as you mentioned earlier, Gloria, people have different symptoms. And, and one person's COVID experience is going to be different from another person's. There, I have I have a list of symptoms here that is pretty long and pretty general. So, um Really, that fever is in about 90% of the folks, and um, and it's a low-grade fever that that hangs out at about 101, 102, 103. That might not be low to people, but that really is a fever that kind of stays with you um, for about three or four days. That is really a sign that you need to get something checked if you haven't been checked. And there are protocols for going through the process of going to an emergency room um, that, that are more complicated and um, protecting of, of the community than people might think. So there is a protocol um, and, and it is important to go to the ED. If you think you've been dealing with a fever for more than a few days, 
um, or call your doc and see if your doctor thinks you should go to the emergency room because fever plus pain while breathing is a not a good sign. Um, and some people are, you know, get to the shallow breathing and that becomes a problem for them. But if you have severe pain when you're breathing, that is a sign that you need to go to the hospital or if you feel fainting, uh, a head like a light headed or like you want to faint when you're um, getting up to go to the bathroom because it's really hard for people to move around and it's really hard for people to um, fatigue. The fatigue is really bad with this. So um, a lot of those common symptoms are indications that you need to go and get things checked uh, checked out at least by your doc. If a doc says, you know, you can do all this through the phone, through the, the magic of telemedicine now, we've been able to access our docs in a different kind of way and uh, just share the symptoms. If they think that you make that checklist, then it is important to go into the doc because we don't want people dying at home um, because we do believe that is happening in some cases as people are afraid to even go to the hospital. So that is important, too, that no matter if it's uh, if you suspect yourself um that you may have COVID-19 or not, um, you should still pursue uh, health care if you're having shortness of breath or pressure in the chest that feels like, you know, a lot of pressure on top of the chest. Those could be signs of um, uh, real distress. So, you know, we are all under um, distress right now to a degree and uh, people who've been exposed to it that much more so. So especially our essential workers and our people who are moving out and about the community on a regular basis. So it is important to have that testing in there. Um, you also mentioned uh, wanting me to talk about there being more than one strain. It is possible that there is like the flu uh, multiple strains. We do know that the people, um, the majority of the people in New York who are were getting sick had a strain that came out of Europe, not, not necessarily from Asia. So that tells us already, even though we do not know enough, that tells us already that there's some mutation going on because this is all DNA and RNA, which are um, traceable. So we know that through um, you know, just criminal justice system that you can use DNA to isolate and tell whether or not something is uh, associated with a particular uh, individual organism. So in this case with COVID-19, we can see that there are multiple strains because the people in New York, when they go to check the DNA or the RNA of this virus, they see that this it matches up with the virus that was in Europe. So that being said, yeah, Europe is getting hurt pretty hard as well, hit pretty hard as well. So um, it's quite possible that they are milder strains than uh, and more severe ones. All, all this is information we will know more clearly down the line with research. But I would say based on this idea that we know is a different strain from Europe than the one that was in China, um, there is concern. You know, there's a, a cause for concern as re with regards to um you know, just avoiding all the strains because you never know which one you would pick up and uh, but, and what version of the also, illness. That, this is so interesting because it would also um, speak to this issue that so much emphasis is being placed on once you have it, then you have the antibodies. But you could have it and have the antibodies for that particular strain, but it doesn't mean that you're not susceptible to getting another strain of the, of the virus. And... And then becoming um, a walking, you know, um, a, a virus or, or, or viral um, spreader for, yeah. <laughs> for, for mm -hmm. other people. And the reason why I say this they is they call that a super spreader. 
And, and, and I'm so glad you said that because I thought I just made that word up. But it's, <laughs> no, it's a, a super spreader. Yeah. But, but, the, but what we, my concern is, it seems that we keep grasping for the, the, the magic bullet that's supposed to come in and mm-hmm. save us all. And the mm-hmm. idea is you get this finally and you have like, you know, the herd immunity that people have been using this phrase. And mm-hmm. then once you have it, it's done. And then you can go on about your business and you can wear a bracelet that shows you've had it and then mm-hmm. go to work and walk among different people because you have this immunity now and then antibodies. But what you're saying now is that's the possibility. It's not true because if there are other strains, just like the flu and other things that you can get another strain and still be someone who could be a super spreader well the world health organization has already made the statement that you just said they said that we cannot be for sure that um this particular this version or this virus as it is right now uh, will be um you know that that if you have been exposed to this virus that you will be protected from any future versions of the virus Um, they cannot safely say that And that is what makes making this antibody test so complicated, because perhaps you have antibodies for a strain, but not for another strain. Or perhaps you have antibodies and you get a false sense of security and you move out and about the community um, thinking that, you know, I don't I don't need to worry about, you know, getting sick again. Um, And then you oh, God forbid, you're also still shedding your virus. So say you haven't finished the course, because what we're seeing is what and what the scientists are seeing is that people are shedding virus for um, up to two or three weeks after they no longer have symptoms. So they may think like what, uh, uh, you know, sometimes when we take antibiotics and we start feeling better, we don't take any more. But then we find out later that the infection is still there. Um, you know, we're seeing phenomena like that in medical environments right now with COVID-19. So, again, there's so much we don't know that we can't speak with any assurity that, oh, if I had it before, I'm not going to get it again. Um, so that and it is important. What if you're a super spreader? If you are, then you also should not take a laid back approach to having been exposed before. Um, so, yeah, everybody um, should be thinking if I have gotten sick before, that's all the more reason to protect myself and others around me. Um, but if I haven't gotten sick, then it really is a cause for especially if you're living in a high density area or an area that was impacted, um, because that means there's more virus out there to you know, for people to acquire. So and if you're in uh, an area that uses a lot of common spaces like public transportation or even, um, you know, common playing areas or parks and things like that where people are touching surfaces, um, then, you know, again, all the more reason to be careful and to be wearing a mask and in, um, and definitely doing what I call fingertip management, where you are keeping an eye on where your fingers go. So whether you're wearing gloves or not, because a lot of people get a false sense of security from wearing gloves and they think that the gloves are protecting them, but they don't realize they still touch their face um, with the gloves. Um, that's why masks are good. They remind you not to touch your mouth and your nose. Um, even when they're not actually keeping the virus out, it's just limiting the virus. And masks are for the mask wearer, uh, for the mask wearer to protect others. 
they are not necessarily receiving full protection when they're wearing um, these um, face coverings that we're making in our in our homes. So it is important to know that as well, that just because you have a face covering on, it doesn't mean that you're protected from COVID-19 fully. So it is important to have the social distancing, watch the watch where you put your hands, you know, use hand sanitizer because we do know that the alcohol works uh, even faster than um, some of the other methods. So um, that, that all of that is going to be our best approach um, to mitigating this thing as we move back out into the communities because uh, it's with us. COVID-19 is with us and it's going to be with us um, for at, at, for a while. I, I, I do believe it's going to be we're going to be under this new normal for at least two years. Uh, that's just my opinion. And I and don't, you know, well, take know it with a grain Spanish of salt. Flu. The Spanish flu lasted right. from 1918 Absolutely. to 1920. Absolutely. Um, and Ebola lasted some time, too. I mean, it continued yes. even though when it wasn't in the news, it was still continuing in those communities in Africa. Right. Well, Dr. Johnson, you must promise to come back. We oh, yes. want you to come, if not next week, then the week after, and as many okay. weeks as possible. You have been a delight and so informative. But please, our listeners are asking right now, will you come back again? And and if so, uh, we would be delighted to have you. Uh, I will I, be happy to return. I'd be happy to return. Thank you, Dr. Johnson, who is currently on the nursing faculty at Virginia Commonwealth University School of Nursing, teaching in public health and population health nursing. And we thank you so much for all of your information. Yes, And be safe. All right, you too. Thank you. Thank you. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. We have a little bit of time right now for us to very quickly go to um, Jarek Berg. And I know it's difficult during this time, but where else can you get this information and how else can we continue to do the work we do without your support to keep the lights on, to make sure that we can still um, take advantage of this media to contact you, communicate with you, and keep you up to date on things like the coronavirus, as pointed out by Dr. Johnson, and voting rights, which, of course, you know, as I've told you, I've written the book, The Voting Rights War. If you have a chance to get that book, you'll learn more about how long we've been in this struggle, the battle for voting rights, and how this pandemic has been used by some politicians to be a power grab. But we also have a lot of reforms taking place. And attorney um, Jared Berg, who's been on this program for many years, he's our go-to guy for voting rights. Thank you for being so patient, Jared. Thrilled to be here, Gloria. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. And so I know we don't have as much time as we allotted, and there's so much for you to do. But you know you are our go-to guy for voting rights, and we will have you back again to discuss more of these important issues, especially during this year of the 2020 census, going into the national election, many local elections. So please give us an update. What is going on with voting rights legislation reforms in the state of New York and, if you can, around the country? Sure. Thank you, Gloria. And uh, thrilled to be back. And you are correct. This is an evolving situation. So uh, I'm happy to join you uh, as these uh, these programs change over time and uh, the state of emergency continues to evolve uh, and hopefully go away. Um, so last we spoke, the concern regarding civil rights safeguards uh, that are needed to meet the new challenges and hurdles and restrictions during a pandemic, uh, we sort of uh, we, we left off there that um, we were hopeful that there would be some reforms. But we know that during an emergency, civil rights are always squeezed or at risk of 
uh, vulnerability. Um, so there are always access challenges, but I'm pleased to report that, that we've made uh, a bunch of progress in the past couple of weeks. Uh, so um, for June primaries, all New Yorkers uh, who are eligible to vote in the primaries or the New York uh, 27 special uh, in the Buffalo area, uh, that's a partisan race, they may, all voters may vote in person or by mail. Uh, now it and, is and say true, that one more time a little louder because I think that's great news. So all New Yorkers who are eligible to vote in the June contest may vote in person or by mail. Uh, that is a brand new reform for New York. Uh, other states have had vote by mail, but that's never been uh, an option, a widely used option in New York because we have this excuse-based system. In 2018, um, I've read three and a half percent of New Yorkers voted absentee. So this is a brand new thing for New Yorkers, but it is an option for everyone who's eligible. Um, I do need to clarify, folks probably had heard, uh, there, uh, right now there's no presidential primary in New York. That's been scrapped uh, because there was only one candidate left standing and New York doesn't do uh, uncontested elections. Uh, that is being litigated right now, but for now uh, there's uh, still um, a bunch of exciting congressional and state legislative primaries and a whole bunch of local races taking place June 23rd. Uh, and so now folks have the option to vote by mail uh, or early um, or on election day. We're encouraging as many folks as possible to take advantage of that new option uh, and to vote by mail uh, or to vote early. Um, so I'll quickly run through that if that's okay. Uh, to vote oh, by please. mail, uh, you must request an absentee ballot. Uh, the good news is New York City launched uh, a fast and easy online form. So that's the best option for people who have Internet access or a smartphone. Go to the New York City Board of Elections website. I recommend you do it right now. Uh, take less than two minutes to uh, submit your information and they will mail you your absentee ballot. Uh, that will come with postage paid return, which is another major win. Uh, it, it, it sounds uh, like it shouldn't be a big thing to uh, to cover the cost of a stamp. Uh, but in the pandemic, putting aside uh, the poll tax nature of this, which is its own conversation uh, during the pandemic, requiring people to go find stamps would totally undermine the entire purpose of this this exercise. Uh, so the governor is covering postage paid return, uh, which is a good thing. Um, and so uh, uh, for folks without Internet access, uh, uh, everybody will be mailed an application form, also postage paid return. Now, when I say everybody, we mean eligible June voters. And of course, uh, it needs to be said, New York's voting rolls uh, are sloppy. They're not clean. We don't have automatic registration. So the voting rolls are only as good uh, as they are right now. Um, if folks are eligible for June, they believe they're eligible for June, you can still make changes and update your registration. Uh, we have to empower people to help themselves and look out for their own interests. So we recommend people check their registration and get those requests in right now. I know folks are dealing, especially in our city, in our state, with a ton of hardship. Uh, but we've never been able to mobilize voters this early in the process. So people get those requests in now. Ballots will start going out uh, in the coming, uh, I think, next week and the following week. Uh, and so... Uh, it's important to get those requests in there. The sooner you request, the sooner they'll mail it out. Obviously, the mail takes time in both directions. The deadline for making that request is Saturday, June 16th, but let's not wait until then. Uh, and then you have to mail your ballot back uh, by June 22nd. That's the Monday before Election Day. Uh, and we're fighting to change that. We think it doesn't make any sense to have a different deadline for mail-by 
because New York actually does allow your ballot uh, to count as long as it's received within a week of Election Day. So uh, we're still fighting for a few more changes. Uh, but the good news uh, is everybody can vote by mail. Uh, there will also be in-person early voting uh, every day, Saturday, June 13th until Sunday, June 21st. Uh, the hours vary county by county, and they'll be posted in the coming days, so that's not public yet. Uh, there's still Election Day, Tuesday, June 23rd, uh, 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. for the primaries. Uh, and uh, but, but the goal here is to de-densify Election Day. So we're encouraging boards of elections to lean into these new reforms. Let's expand early voting. Let's make sure those locations are convenient uh, and the hours make sense for people. We want as many people as possible to avail themselves of those alternatives uh, to reduce the Election Day footprint. That is fantastic. Um, the, the fact that the fact that we would have mail-in ballots. I mean, it, uh, so much has happened and is a consequence of this pandemic that um, should have happened in the first place. Um, things have come to our attention that we have put off because we didn't have to do it. And now we do have to do it. And I think this is, an, is very important. Um, I, now, what uh, other reforms do you want to see happen? So you raise such a good point. Uh, it should not have taken a pandemic to expand voting options for people and to cover things like uh, like the cost of a stamp. Uh, so right off the bat, disability rights remains a concern. Uh, the governor has issued executive orders to try and smooth that out, but we should not be legislating and writing uh, policy detail by executive order. So there really is a call for the legislature to get back to work uh, and for the state board to do what people expect them to do. Uh, they do have budget issues, but we need to, if there's a state board, their job is to maintain quality control and uniformity over the, the 58 boards of elections around the state. Uh, so, so what we're trying to do is uh, we want to make sure that uh, as if we're shifting to vote by mail, first, that people know about it. Uh, there's no real requirement that the boards of elections tell people about that prominently on their website. We're calling for that. Uh, New York City, Erie County, and Livingston County, that's where that special election is. Uh, they've put an online form on their website, but these other counties haven't. Uh, so that sort of runs the gamut of making people download and print and fill out a form and scan it and email it in. That's like five steps too many uh, if there's like a simple online tool people could use. Uh, so we don't want to see that. We don't want to see dramatic disparity around the state. Uh, for disability uh, advocates, uh, they filed a Department of Justice complaint because uh, voting by mail uh, does not uh, automatically give folks the access that they would have uh, if they had access to a ballot marking device. So the governor's folks responsive to that uh, said that every board of elections has to offer uh, a ballot marking device uh, at their board in the coming days and weeks, uh, sort of, you know, on a regular schedule. Uh, but that, that's not exactly what we're looking for here. We're hoping that folks with disabilities would be able to, to request a Braille or large print ballot. Um, other jurisdictions are actually starting to look at online options. Uh, we're not sure how, how secure that is. Uh, and uh, one proposal that we have is to actually allow uh, bulk requests. So if you have a facility uh, with, uh, at housing authorities or, or places, uh, nursing homes and places where uh, a large amount of people are residing, uh, that the, the leaders of that facility should be able to coordinate uh, bulk ballot delivery. They could schedule language access and disability access hours uh, and, and then facilitate the return of that. So then we wouldn't even have to rely on the mail. 
where you have so many similarly situated voters, all of whom would be eligible and want to uh, participate. So we're looking at things like that. Uh, we're, we're looking to codify some of these changes. These changes are important, but they're only in effect for June right now. We don't want to be governing by executive order. So uh, giving our board some uh, clarity and predictability about where we'll be in the fall, given that uh, all predictions say that uh, the pandemic, uh, it, it might alleviate slightly, but that we are nowhere near uh, the end of whatever this thing is. Uh, so we're looking at all those sort of things uh, uh, and a few additional ones uh, as well to smooth out the edges. We want to make sure ballots are counted. This state has uh, a process of post-election canvas uh, where there's ballots are thrown out for ridiculous reasons. Uh, Gloria, if you tape your ballot instead of sealing it uh, with saliva, your ballot can be thrown out because it's uh, challenged or not sealed properly. So we want to eliminate all those species spaces that are used uh, to bounce people's ballots. I call them technical knockouts. Uh, but basically, if a voter is eligible and you can figure out who the voter intended to vote for, that's it. The ballot should be presumed valid. People should have due process. Uh, we shouldn't be throwing people's ballots out without uh, due process. And uh, ballots have to be uh, treated valid unless proven otherwise. And that is Jarrett Berg. He's a New York attorney, voting rights advocate, and co-founder of Vote Early New York. And very quickly in our last 10 seconds, please give your um, the way in which people can get in touch with you um, your website. Thanks, Gloria. So folks can visit VoteEarlyNY.org or follow us on Twitter, VoteEarlyNY. We're a proud partner of the Let New York Vote Coalition, which is fighting so hard for these reforms. Uh, and we'll be updating the website as the counties. Uh, put out their their early voting plans. Thanks so much, thank, Gloria. Thank you. Vote early, New York, with Jared Berg. You're listening to Law of the Land. This has been our program filled with insights to empower, to inspire, and hopefully to move you forward, even in the midst of a pandemic. I want to thank so much, uh, Michael G., my engineer, and of course, once again, be a BAI buddy. 99.5 FM WBAI will not be around unless we have support, even in the midst of a pandemic, because we still have to pay the light bill. So until we meet again via the air or anywhere else, stay safely sheltered. 10 a.m. C-SPAN. Listen to this historic um, oral argument of the U.S. Supreme Court. And I will see each and every one of you. It's a new on the radio. Life.